Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Invasion, the television series that recently concluded its 10-episode first season on Apple+. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 47%, and the critics' consensus reads, Invasion attempts a slow burn, but inadvertently lets its tension completely fizzle out with leaden pacing that will leave viewers impatient for the alien apocalypse to finally arrive. Well, that was unusually harsh, but as regular listeners know, here at Below the Line, we don't care about what the critics thought. The scope of this show was epic, and I'll be discussing that today with members of the art department. First, returning to the podcast and friend of the show, Dan Fisher. Dan, you're a New York-based props person and set dresser with 35 years of film experience under your belt, and you were working as a set dresser for Invasion. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Glad to have you here as well, Dan. Also returning to the show is Carrie Weeks. Carrie, you've been working art department gigs for more than 30 years, and you were the lead man on Invasion. Nice to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too, Skid. Getting the gang back together. Finally, though, joining us for the first time, Lauren Weeks. Lauren, you are Invasion's production designer. That's a role you've been doing for more than 20 years now. You're also Carrie's brother. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, this episode has been a long time coming. Back when we were doing the COVID episodes, Dan, you mentioned that you were working on this epic show for Apple. You couldn't share with it what it was then, but when this show came out and I saw your name on it, I really wanted to talk to you guys about all the work that went into this. Listeners, this is your warning. There will be big spoilers today for Invasion. But first, let's talk a little bit about how this show came together. I know Apple ordered the series back in January of 2019. When did each of you get involved? Lauren, why don't you start us off? I think it was, I got a call like February or March uh, of that year. And that we are talking about almost three years ago, which yeah. even in terms of this production, that's a long time from order to actually getting on the air. So you got a call. And so tell me a little about how that went, what they were looking for and what they shared with you out the gate. Well, I got a call from one of the executive producers, Amy Kaufman, who I have worked with for many years. Uh, we worked together on Gossip Girl for you know, five years. And she was really pushing for me to come onto the show. I was at the time kind of sitting tight for another show that I was hoping to come back for season two, but they weren't pulling the trigger on that. And this came along and the scale of it and the fact that it was science fiction, which I am a big sci-fi fan myself and had not done science fiction yet. I jumped on this. I met with a showrunner. We, we really just chatted a lot about it. I had, I guess, two scripts and maybe a, a series outline is kind of typically what I get and um, signed on. Well, we'll talk more about how uh, things came together in those early months. Carrie, Dan, when did you guys become involved? Uh, well, I guess it was about two months after Lauren first got the call. That's usually how that falls into place. I think I was on Lauren's previous show as well. Probably Dan and I both were. So it was just uh, very convenient to roll right into that. And um, yeah, so it's early spring 2019. That seemed about right, Dan. Yeah, that seems right. Because we were doing uh, High Fidelity at that time when we were, we were going to. Oh, that's right. No, that wasn't a long yeah. show. That yeah. was. Uh, and I haven't else. forgotten. I haven't forgotten. <laughs> uh, well, neither have we. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I remember now, I started at the beginning of May of 2019. That's when I, I started. And I just finished a film uh, called The Photograph. 
and yeah, Carrie, you guys were not, for whatever reason, um, you know, the timing, whatever you were doing. Timing didn't work out. That other show. Yeah, and, and the way it's it's been going, at least for me, for since, I guess, late 2017 or early 2018, as uh, regular listeners might know, um, I had health issues at the end of 2017. I had been prop master for uh, the show, The Americans, and then I had to leave the prop master business entirely when I had some heart issues. And eventually, Carrie hired me on during my first round of dealing with that to work as his set dressing shop foreperson. Then later, I had a heart transplant. And so since that first call from Carrie, I've worked usually pretty much whatever he's doing, I, I wind up working on to help do that aspect of it, the logistics part, keeping track of things like time cards and all that stuff that, that, you know, Carrie has a lot on his plate to begin with. So a lot of what my job is, is to keep Carrie from being sidetracked with a lot of that kind of minutiae and who's driving which truck and what's picking up that. That leaves him a lot more free time to interact with the set dressers and so forth. But anyway, I bring that up just all because, you know, more a lot of times where Lauren goes, Carrie goes, and a lot of times where Carrie goes, I go, not necessarily always. I'm working on something right now for Netflix because, you know, I got a call to do something and we were between uh, jobs and still waiting to start something this year. So timing is everything. And it's also nice to work with people you, you love and enjoy being with. Uh, and I certainly can say that about Carrie and Lauren, and I enjoy their working methods. Uh, but at the same time, it's nice to sometimes get away from each other. I imagine as brothers, you know, there, there is that dynamic where you love that chemistry you've had since birth. But at the same time, sometimes it's nice just to get out of each other's hair. Well, you know, it is an aside, but I'll, I'll bring it up now. I noticed looking at IMDb that, Carrie, you're the younger brother, but it looks like your film career started a good six or seven years before Lawrence did. Oh, you caught that, huh? Yeah, I, I like to say I taught Lauren everything he knows, but that's not really, <laughs> not really the case. But yeah, I did start in the film business before Lauren. He was an architect at the time when I started, and then he transferred those skills to uh, set design. Lauren, what motivated you to leave architecture to, to come into film? <clears throat> well, I was never really happy in architecture, I have to say. And I was looking, I was actually looking for a way out. I went back to school part-time a little bit to study graphic design at Pratt Institute. So I was, I was kind of open and Carrie, when he got out of school, he moved here to New York and we became roommates and he wanted to write scripts and make short movies. He says we talked about it, but I really have no recollection of that, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> who knows? I may have been drunk or something. I don't know. Um, so we did, I, you know, it's, I said, why not? Neither one of us had been to film school. He was just starting in the business, but we did a couple of short films that did well in the festival circuit. And that and $5 will get you a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I really decided, you know, to get into production because I just wanted to make contact so that he and I would do our scripts and films or whatever. But I PA'd for a while on commercials and PA being a production assistant for those who don't know the abbreviation. And then I, I got a job as an art department coordinator on David O. Russell's second film, I guess it is, after Spanking the Monkey called Flirting with Disaster, working with a very wonderful production designer, Kevin Thompson, who's gone on to do really wonderful stuff. Judy Ree was our art director. She's now designing as well. 
And I discovered the art department and found a home. You know, I had the skill set that it sort of was perfect for my kind of creativity, which is rather eclectic and confusing. So the rest is history. I just want to tell a quick story about that David O. Russell film, Flirting with Disaster. There was some reshoots they had to do. And I'm not sure if this was because of Lauren or not, but somehow I got <laughs> called to be the lead man for the reshoots uh, or some additional shooting that had to be done with that. And I'll never forget this because we were doing an in-prison dinner scene and it had like all my childhood TV idols in there. There was Lily Tomlin, (laughs) Alan Alda, George Siegel. Who else was there? Mary Tyler Moore there? Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah, Mary Tyler Moore. Yes, it was amazing. I was like, oh my God, I feel like I've gone back in a time machine and it's Friday night and I'm watching (laughs) all my (laughs) childhood TV pals here it was amazing absolutely amazing experience that's to me the the only time i i ever get starstruck really is when i meet somebody right? exactly like that from when i was a kid you know like i i one time met gordon from sesame street played a judge on law and order and you would think i was meeting <laughs> you know Lawrence olivier or something but it was just, you're gordon you exist outside of the street <laughs> gentlemen well jumping ahead uh, and bringing us back to invasion. Let's talk first about what the plan was pre-COVID because early, you know, mid-2019, we don't know that there's going to be this issue come 2020. And so you're planning what is an epic series, multiple continents. Lauren, tell us a little more about what you were envisioning and sort of how things were coming together before we knew it was on the horizon. Well, pre-COVID, we planned to finish, I think, by May of 2020, but by March of 2020, we were shut down. So that was the number one hiccup. Overall, I, I didn't know what what I was getting into. You know, they really didn't have it sort of sorted out as to how to do all the, the various countries. You know, it's just complicated, these scheduling issues. And even pre-COVID, you've got directors doing multiple episodes. Each director did two episodes, except for our producer-director, Jakob Vorderbruggen. Uh, he did four, one and two, and then nine and ten. So, you know, it was just, it was really quite complicated and a bit overwhelming. At one point, I had four, three or four directors I was working with. Because each episode had work in another country, and that work was being pushed to a later date, I never quite got rid of any director. And they were still wanting to prep what they were doing in these foreign countries while I'm now working with directors here in in the States trying to get their work done. So I was really feeling, you know, that rubber doll figure that that used to be where Mr. Stretch, where you pull him in all four directions. That's how I felt. Stretch arm. Yes, thank you. That's how I felt. This is what I'm going to contribute to this conversation. (laughs) Thank you. The four countries, by the way, beside, or the three other countries besides ours, were what? Morocco, Japan, and Great Britain, right? Yes. Yep. Now, Lauren, I noticed on IMDb also that there are other production designers listed on this show, what I assume to be regional production designers. Is that typical for a show this large, or was that specifically because of COVID? COVID had a big part in dealing with that because we did have art departments set up in each of those uh, locales. But with the advance of COVID, it became clear that um, travel may be restricted and we weren't sure what was going on. It was also, you know, just because I, I wouldn't know how much I could be 
there. Now, I know that all of you are New York-based. Was there a specific reason why the production was New York-based, given the scope of what it was going to be? And in fact, there doesn't, that I recall, appear to be any New York-specific filming in the project. <laughs> um, but then, so why based in New York at all? Uh, who knows? You know, <laughs> I, they, they looked at Atlanta. I know that. I don't know where else they looked. In fact, they were, I think, planning to go to Atlanta and then change their minds for whatever reason. And it was really after, after that that I got the call. So I, I don't know why, because we did shoot New York, but it could have been outside Atlanta. You know, it didn't need to be New York. I don't know. Tax credits. Well, there were there were scenes of the family driving alongside, you know, like crossing the bridge and you saw the New York City skyline and then the lights majestically just suddenly all start dropping out and dropping out. And I think there is, I mean, I don't want to over talk my production designer, but I mean, I do think that this art that New York in general is a pretty versatile area to film. It is. I mean, I live in Rockland County, which is about 35 miles north of the city and where we, we shot quite a bit of, it turns out, where we yep. shot quite a bit of invasion. And that's where we had done like the Oklahoma seats, you know, in downtown Haverstrom. And then other areas were farms and things like that. But then, you know, within a certain amount of traveling, you could go out to Long Island and shoot there. Or yeah, you could do stuff in the city and it was weird, too, because we had production facilities, you know, production office in Brooklyn. But, you know, we also had the stage out in Long, deep into Long Island. And our set dressing shop was sort of at a halfway point in Long Island City. Or was that? No, we were in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, we were in Brooklyn. Uh, Long Island City. No, you were Long right. Island City. That's right. We were on that sort of edge between them. I don't know. So I say, why not New York? You know, I'm supposed to be out of this. <laughs> I like oh, that. Uh, Dan, why not New York? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That should be that should be New York State's new slogan. <laughs> why not? Why not? <laughs> why not New York? In the words of our former president, what have you got to lose? <laughs> <laughs> but also, too, seriously, I mean, we do also have a very large labor pool here. So given the amount of work that had to be done on the sets that Warren designed and, and, and so forth, you know, there, there's a lot of people that, that could fill those spots. But, you know, Atlanta, you know, is certainly still growing. But compared to New York, you know, production crews, we've got a lot more people at our disposal. Well, that's true. We, we have such top notch crews here. I mean, we really do. The talent pool we have to draw upon is fantastic. Did it start late 2019 or early 2020 when you guys actually started filming? October 2019. And so you filmed up until March. So you got about five, six months under your belt. What scenes or locations were the focus of those five or six months? All the stuff we were shooting in New York. Yeah, so like, <laughs> <laughs> well, like Dan said, we did a lot of stuff up in Rockland County, yeah. which we played as Oklahoma, the cornfields and small town Oklahoma. And uh... we did a lot of stage work here. We had, in terms of sets we built, we had the JASA Flight Control Center. JASA was our fictional version of JAXA, uh, the Japanese Aeronautic Space Administration. So we had that. We had the shuttle. We built the shuttle for that scene, those scenes. Uh, we built Mitsuki's apartment, which, you know, is a Japanese apartment. Um, what else did we do, guys? Well, we did the white room, which was the entrance into the shuttle. Right, at the, um, the uh, tower, yeah. And we started some interiors of the um, Malik House. Right, yeah. which... The location was out in Long Island, but because we had these special... No, that was up north Oh, the well. right. Sorry. You're that right. was, uh, yeah, I forget where. Around New Rochelle. That's yeah. right. New Rochelle. Yeah. 
Well, I was going to say we did that huge crash scene in the streets oh, right. there in New Rochelle right. outside the Malik house where we tore, you know, we made it look like the whole street got like torn up and cars were on fire and all that. Yeah. Right. And we, and we built, we built part of the Malik house. We built um, part of the ground floor, which had like the TV family room and the kitchen breakfast area because of the special effects that we wanted to do there when the unknown, whatever it was, alien ship or whatever was passing by and everything started to vibrate we had to control that. We had to be able to control the walls and everything. So we built that. Yeah. Going back to the COVID thing, I remember working on it. You know, 95% of the work I did, by the way, even though I'm listed as a set dresser, I touched very few sets. I did 95% of my work was sitting at a desk, orchestrating pickups, returns, crew, who's going out where. And that was actually a pretty challenging job behind the desk because we had so many different locations spread out. Rockland County, Nassau County, Long Island, Brooklyn, whatever else, just keeping track of what's going to the right place and the people going to the right place at the right time. That can be pretty complicated. And if if I've made a mistake, then I've sent a truck all the way up to Rockland County that turns out has like maybe an item that really needs to get back to Long Island by the end of the day because it shoots the next day. You're talking half a day wasted. Yeah, I was always like telling Dan, please make sure everything gets to where it goes. And a little life hack as as a lead man, if you get the chance, hire a former prop master be your <laughs> shop foreman because they fucking rock when you need shit done like that so well former prop masters have spent their entire lives being yelled at for mistakes <laughs> so usually in front of a crowd of, of, of their peers so it really sort of makes you you know you really want to double check your work at all times is all i can say not that i was infallible i certainly set up a few you know few wrong chairs here and there but I don't overall think so yeah it, it went <laughs> flawless kept a list by the way <laughs> but i remember i mean every time we had to go to a location or the stage it was an hour drive yeah you know we were all over the place and i remember one day i had to go to two locations in the stage starting from the offices in steiner studio in the brooklyn navy yard i spent maybe a total of an hour checking in on these two locations in the stage. And it took me four or five hours to drive it all. I mean, you were talking about how we have so much stage space here in New York, but the truth is, is because we're in streaming mania right now, I'm not sure how much was available for rental and certainly for the amount of time we would need to have it. We were very lucky to get what we got out there in Beth Page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that made it hard for Carrie and myself, I'm sure. Everybody, everybody. It was yeah. But I mean, just in terms of, of getting the personnel we needed, part of my job was also that was when we needed day players to call the, the local 52 and try to get people to, to work on our show, which at first it'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm available. And you go, well, you have to go out to Beth Page, Long Island. And it'd be like, well, I live in New, New Jersey. Screw that. <laughs> yeah. That happened a lot. I had a couple of department heads uh, I was interviewing for it and they passed because, you know, it's too far to drive. And, you know, 15 years ago, the job came along, you took it because you didn't know when the next, you know, it, there wasn't that, you know, we had a handful of TV shows and a few movies every year. And then one, one last thing, going back to the COVID question you're asking, I just recall sitting at my desk in like January and that's when, you know, we first started hearing about COVID and then it was like this storm cloud definitely heading in our direction. So it really became at that point, 
like a countdown as to what day will be our, our day before we bug out. Yeah. And, and I certainly remember that day of bugging out. Right. Yeah. That was a very memorable Oh, yeah. Remember day. they sent us home saying it'll be two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys listed a lot of things that were shot in the New York area. Had you completed all of that, most of that, or only some of that before COVID shut you down? Most of it. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel that we got most of episodes one and two in the can. I think we were on to three and four at that point. I think we we were on to three and four, and I think we had almost finished that. So actually, I'm going to revise that. I think we're about halfway through because you know what? We had five and six. We had the big house with the, the creature chasing everybody. But what I remember, too, is that the big sort of field hospital that we, we wound up building. Right. Originally, that was supposed to be an Ikea. And the whole thing was that people would be taken care of in rooms that were like those sample Ikea rooms, you know, like a bed and a, and a, and a little dresser and so forth. And we even we had this whole location deal with the, the Ikea in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And I think we were getting ready to, to invade that Ikea. That was going to be a huge right. setup. That was like... Oh. A- that was an then, invasion. That was going to be an invasion. <laughs> yeah. And then we got the word, you know, we're not going into Ikea. Not only that, we're shutting down for two weeks, as, as Lauren said, and it, it wound up being more than that. And they wound up uh, rewriting it so it was no longer an Ikea. Funny last story. I mean, right, the last set we did do, though, Skid, before we shut down, was a field hospital that was um, sort of an impromptu field hospital that was set up in some strip mall. That was just supposed to be somewhere outside the city, right? So we had uh, army trucks and first aid tents and all this stuff set up. And everyone in the town, everyone in the town is driving by going, is this for that COVID thing? (laughs) Everyone was sure that this was the beginning of the, uh, you know, the pandemic that everyone was going to end up in that hospital tent that we set up. I remember uh, when we were dressing that set, we were about finished with it and I picked up the New York Times and on the cover of the New York Times was kind of a field hospital set up where the cruise ships were. Right. And it was like, oh my God, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is what we just did. Anyway, yeah, it was a little bit eerie. And so when COVID became real and we went to indefinite shutdown, what changes did you see? Adjustments to the script and the schedule? How did the production react to COVID? And give me a sense of what that process was like for all of you. I don't think in terms of the script, there were really any changes to the story. It had more to do with just the logistics and how many extras we could have on on a set at any given time, how many crew members could be there at any given time. Definitely a change of the schedule because by recollection, guys, we were only allowed like one crew on a set at a time. Typically when we're building a set, it's a cluster fuck, you know, it's like everybody's in there. You've got scenics and construction and set dressers and people wanting to rehearse for God's sakes, you know, things like that. Stunts people. Yeah. Stunts people, right. They want to get in there and do their rigging. Special effects want to get in there and do their rigging, but they wouldn't allow us to do that. So it really affected our ability to get a set ready. I do think, though, that the scale of what we were doing shrunk down a little bit. When we came back, we had fewer locations, fewer large locations. Like we had uh, right before we went on our COVID break, uh, we were scheduled to do this huge IKEA thing that was going to be a um, um, refugee, refugee, refugee center. center. Yes. Thank you, Lauren. 
We ended up going to an abandoned lo- or an empty location for that that's college or campus that was up there. It was actually a conference center. Oh, that was it, a conference right. center. Right, and yeah. we, we created like a um, small community college look to it. Right. You know, they did tailor the stuff, I think, to kind of protect us a bit more so that we weren't that's true. out in, in um, we, were, we were more in an envelope of, of our own making at that point. That's a good point, Carrie, because it, it wasn't just that. It was that nobody wanted us. <laughs> it <was> like, <laughs> you want to do what? You want to bring how many people in here? It did. It, you're right. It did affect us in that regard. We had to we had to think differently about our locations. As a something of a grunt, uh, grunt's eye view of it all, too. What I remember, first of all, is, is how during that that shutdown, there was all kinds of mixed messages or, or, or various messages that we were either overhearing or being imparted to those of us who are our crew people and crop people and so forth. And that the thing was going to be like, well, you know, when you get back, there's going to be all these restrictions. You're going to have to work in the restrictions. Production knows this. They will have to accommodate restrictions. And that's just the way life is going to be in production from now on ad infinitum. And I think that on our, on this, on invasion, especially that was one where when we did come back, everybody took it very, very seriously. I mean, these, we still do, but what honestly, what I've seen in the X number of months since we've returned is a slow amount of laxity, depending on which production you're on. Some productions have taken things less seriously than others, but with our show coming back, it was really, at least at first, I remember like the health, the, the COVID team coming with six foot long sticks with <laughs> <laughs> with tennis balls on each end. That's right. When people, when I still got the bruises. Close, Are you kidding me? They, yeah. they, would, they would hold the, the pole between them six feet. <laughs> and I'm really surprised nobody ever grabbed one of those sticks. And oh my God. I feel so sorry. I felt so sorry for those PAs having to do that. The amount of dirty looks they got from people. If you come near me with that stick, I swear I'll shove <laughs> yeah, it up you. <laughs> I think now that we've got Omicron and all the other variations that have yet to come, I think there's being a swing back to, oh yeah, we really do have to take this yeah. seriously. We're not, we're not out of the woods. But you know, Dan, that, that also reminds me, again, you were asking how it affected things. It became very difficult to have any kind of, you know, film people, I mean, we're always talking between the trades. Like our department has to coordinate with the construction. We have to coordinate with set dressing we have to coordinate with the visual effects and special effects and the stunt people and all this and we're used to just gathering around and talking and now we had to do it six feet apart wearing masks and you couldn't hear anybody it's like you know everything you know it's like it made the job all that much harder to do and when you have the air filters going those right. large, you know yeah. things, it's like you're on an airport tarmac yeah 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 it was very frustrating Yes. It still is sometimes. Yes. But we, we've gotten lax. We, you know, I think it, COVID fatigue, and we, we've all experienced it. Now you do start to see it, the um, be more careful. You know, people are very wary of the Omicron. So I want to follow up on what you described, that sort of surreal sense of the things you were designing for the show, these field hospitals or refugee camps, how it seemed to parallel in some way, especially during those early days, uh, what we were anticipating with COVID. Talk to me more about, even before COVID, sort of the challenges of designing and decorating for the apocalypse. You know, it's the interesting thing about the way we approach, the, the story was approached in that 
unlike so many alien invasion movies, it's all about the action and the fighting between humans and the invading extraterrestrials and the destruction. And we, we didn't have that much like that. Our story followed the lives of our characters and being caught up in this thing they didn't understand and no one knew what was going on for, you know, what, half the series, right? Or so. So the apocalypse look really didn't happen until the much later episodes. Even then, we didn't see that much of it. I mean, I, I think probably the London stuff had the most uh, kind of biggest visuals for that. So I think for us, I don't know, for me, I, I didn't find it that different than a lot of what we've done. It was really about the characters. So you're designing for the characters. The difference, I think, is that our characters were all on the move. So they're going into locations that have had nothing to do with them in their prior lives. So it was different in that regard. It was fun dressing some of the sets for taking, well, like you said, the the conference center that we turned into a refugee center, but it was supposed to look like in its previous incarnation, it was a community college. So it was interesting to take these spaces and change them not once, but twice. Usually we go into a space and we make it look like X, but this time we you know, went to a space and it was once X, but now we've changed it to Y, and that was kind of fun. Right, and then add the layer of the refugee, you know, right. with the, the, the makeshift triage area and how and people were camped out in rooms. And yeah, and how people were camped out and, with yeah. their, their personal belongings and grocery sacks and everything else. Yeah. Well, in talking about specific locations, you alluded to it earlier, but I wanted to confirm all of the Oklahoma stuff, the cornfields and that, the Sam Neill portion during that first episode, you did that all in outside New York, in upstate New York. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was Rockland County. That's, and again, that's not really upstate. I mean, anything oh, north of New York City, people, people tend to call upstate. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so far. <laughs> it was, it was what, like, 45 minutes? My God. It's frigid up there, the great north, the great white north. As a daily commuter, it was actually often fun for me to listen to my my cohorts bitch and moan about having to go all the way up to Rockland County and then back to their safe abodes in Brooklyn. But, uh, Anything above exit one off the Palisades. Haverstraw, New York played uh, the downtown, whatever Oklahoma town that was supposed to be. Idabel. Idabel. And Haverstraw is just one of those towns that just time just hasn't really changed a whole lot. I think. I mean, not to not to diminish any of Lauren's work or, or Carrie's work, but I think a lot of the elements are just kind of there, you know, have been there from the 1940s or 50s on. Yep. And then, yeah, we've got farmlands and stuff. You know, I think any city, if you go out 30 miles from any city boundary, you start to come across farms or barns or whatever, even New York. Well, taking a completely different tact from uh, the New York shooting, talk to me about doing the forward operating base in Morocco, which is supposed to be Afghanistan. Yeah, that that was a little daunting since we had nothing nothing to work up from other than a empty desert, and there there are a lot of restrictions in terms of what you can bring in in terms of military equipment and the like. Uh, you have to put in your request very very early. Basically, you know, I laid that out to address certain beats in the script that the director in a certain way he wanted to do it. So, you know, first I laid it out as a plan and then we created a 3D model and then I had them walk through it. And that's basically how that opening scene was shot, which was very cool. You know, I, I hope we got it right. Uh, we did have military advisor 
and we just did a, a whole hell of a lot of research of what forward operating bases look like. Lauren, you never you you never got to travel to that location, right? There's no scouting for you there. No, I I scouted Morocco. Oh, you did? Uh, yeah, I was there twice. Did you make those scouts before COVID? In other words, this was planned, but you hadn't shot any of it yet when the COVID shutdown happened. We started shooting. We shot episode two. That's where the Ford Operating Base first showed up. The little market, um, school, and then we shot. Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> we we did shoot two and then i think they went back to shoot the remaining work and by that time we had a production designer uh, helping me out on the work we did there the stuff for some of the later episodes was delayed yeah. but not that early work no not the early work was there any of that desert work or when they have the alien encounter any of that that got brought back to the states or that was all just done over in morocco that was all done in morocco I mean, I do think it's really cool, both as a, as a viewer and, a, and as somebody who worked on it. You know, I can't think of any other show, television show, certainly, that was as uh, ambitious, internationally ambitious as this. I know that Game of Thrones would do various portions of their shows in different areas of the world. That's about the only thing I think that could rival it in terms of having setups, you know, so spread out across the globe. And, and, and I think it was to the benefit of the show. I think that is one element of the show that worked, I, I think, pretty well, was that the stories did get to be seen from these different perspectives, and each one of them were distinct. And that made it a more interesting show for me to watch. And you did get the sense of the that this was a worldwide event as well. So it definitely played, it was effective in that. And it wasn't up to the good old Americans to be the ones necessarily to take out the bad guy aliens through their mastery of a, of a Mac laptop computer or, or their sudden ability to fly a, a spaceship. <laughs> An Independence Day reference for you kids out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm cycling through the overseas work. Talk to me about the work in uh, Manchester and London. Yeah, and that, that was after we came back from COVID. Uh, so a lot of that work had, had passed on to the production designer in the UK. How in conjunction were you, Lauren, with that designer? I mean, in terms of having your vision be shared by him, with, how much independence did he have from you? Or was it, he, how cohesive was it? He had a fair amount of independence. It just needed to be that way, you know, because we were still so much work we were doing here. You, you just can't do it all. It's simultaneous, you know, so. And the hospital interiors, was that all on location? That was, yeah. In London or? Uh, London. They were in London. Yeah, the, the um, where the kids' bus crashed was outside of Manchester. It was an old abandoned quarry, which was an extremely cool place. <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> such. The, the scouting for that was just so much fun. You know, I got to tell you, we were, we were wandering all over the British countryside. And I guess this was December, I think I was there. So it was cold, but really great. My cinematographer and I were on, on the crawl for the, the best pint of Guinness. <laughs> so we were hitting all the pubs. I actually found the best pint when I was flying home and I had to, I was routed through the Dublin airport and they actually have Guinness dispensaries. <laughs> People were lining up to get their Guinness and oh my God, that was so good. <laughs> I took a picture and sent it to Tim Ives, our cinematographer. That's a different kind of scout. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Also talk to me, though, about the split of the work in Japan. As you mentioned earlier, a lot of the major sets, the control room, the space shuttle itself, yep. and even one of the apartments you built in New York. So what did that leave for Japan, and, and what were you looking for there? Well, it's location work, you know, the exteriors. And we did not have a production designer there. We had an excellent art director. She was absolutely amazing. So we, we did just locations there mostly. We like the, the temple that I think appears in nine or 10, a lot of the Tokyo streets and everything. And so then bringing us home to the sets that you did build here, why didn't they find, I don't know, I guess you would have had to build that control set no matter where you were, is that right? We don't have access to something Correct. that's set up like that in advance. Correct. So. You know, I think there was originally when we started off, there, there was plans to do even more of the built sets here in New York. And with COVID, when we came back, you know, people couldn't travel. The talent, you know, there were restrictions for traveling. And so there were certain things that got moved. For instance, we did a whole set design uh, for the um, control room at the radio observatory. And then they decided to do it in the UK because bringing all those people here didn't make sense. So a lot of that's how also how COVID affected us. Things that was planned to be here then got moved to the countries they were scripted for. To your point, because we did have different restrictions, even as far as getting around and where people could get in and out and just how COVID was affecting different areas at yeah. the time. When we scouted, well, we, you know, I was in Japan twice scouting, and then we did a third scout, which we had to do remotely from New York. They walked around with a tablet and Zoomed it. And then the director actually directed those episodes remotely as well. Well, on the sets that you did do here, when you talk about things like the space shuttle and the flight control room, in some ways it feels like the real locations are fairly well documented. Talk to me about the sort of creative process for both production designer, then carry what you're doing as far as decorating these sets that represent established places. You mean like the flight control room? For example. Yeah, which which are not really, I mean, we, we did research to see what they look like in real life. And for the shuttle, we did research on what SpaceX was doing you know, and, and some of the other companies that are still working in that area. But, you know, it's all pretty much fiction. We wanted the whole thing to feel grounded. So we weren't into doing really huge techno sets. For instance, our Japanese, uh, our flight control room was based on a real flight control center. But then, you know, I took artistic license because I wanted to make it a little more dramatic and to do that with common materials that you would use. I mean, if you look at the ceiling in that thing, those are um, slatted ceilings and they, they they just turned out, you know, I was really pleased with the way it looked. It just gives a lot of drama to that room without trying. And I think that was the bane of Carrie and Dan's existence, that ceiling. <laughs> that was an endeavor. It was also expensive. That was like a, over $100,000 for that ceiling. Not to Carrie, we don't talk about money. <laughs> <laughs> It would have cost, it actually would have cost more to build it. You know, I, I yeah. did a ceiling like that, uh, of that scale in um, Harlem's Paradise, Luke Cage, you know, right. remember? Yeah. We yeah, built yeah, that yeah. all on the floor. We did, you know, and then we lifted it up. And anyway, so yeah. that was pretty damned expensive. I think that Apple came out with a new phone around that time. So I think they managed it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fun doing that ceiling. And, uh, you know, it's always good when you have a, a problem like that that needs solving. It was fun doing that set. It, it was the kind of set that you could just dress forever. Uh, it would just keep taking stuff and you could keep layering in. 
it was well done. I just had a top-notch crew out there to put that in. So yeah. I was disappointed though, you know, going back to the sets, you know, the things that we didn't do, I, I was both relieved and disappointed. We, we mentioned uh, how the whole huge Ikea refugee center set got eliminated and something else came in its place, which was a little easier to do. But then also that radio control center was going to be a, a really big dress as well. Yeah. We were going to take over the uh, office at Grumman Studios up above and do a big conversion up there. And uh, that was another thing that we were marshalling the forces for right before yeah. the shutdown. Yeah, I was sorry to lose that set. I, w- I was looking yeah, forward to doing that one. I was too. And there was some great flooring choices that went in there. We had like a different color flooring for each room. And, right, uh, which which basically was, again, from my research of one we had visited in, in Japan, just trying to bring in that sort of design sensibility. It's all derivatives, kid. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the curse of the set dresser and, and, and obviously of the designer too, that you do put all of this work into it and, and weeks of effort and who knows what the money is and so forth. But then you just have to leave it to the shooters and, and hope yeah. that whatever effort you've put in gets represented to some degree or another. And unfortunately for us on that regard, I mean, much of the show, certainly the American portions, the, the, the family portions took place at nighttime. So, you know, when watching the show, it's like there are things I just I know that we did that I just really didn't get to see a whole lot of because it's especially in the house. And I think episode eight, when the uh, when the aliens attack the family in the house. A lot of it is just, it's wrapped in darkness, you know, for a reason. It's a nighttime scene and you don't have a ton of lights on in the house or that would make any sense. But, you know, it's like, oh golly, all of that work and I'm seeing just bits and pieces of things, whatever the camera shows me. It is what it is. That's always been been the way. It is what it is. And, you know, there are times when the set dressing and all that should just, you shouldn't be paying that much attention to it. It should just feel right. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it's about. It also, it does, you know, coming from a former prop master perspective, I do know that it is helpful to the actors to just have that level of, if you can afford a level of detail where you make a house feel real and lived in and all that, that helps them believe. And then when we watch them, we believe. So I don't, it doesn't diminish what we do. It's, I just, of course, want to see everything we do because it's. Yes, I completely agree. I listen what I said doesn't mean I don't want to see it on camera. I do, but you know, we're slaves to the story. We have to yeah. tell the story. That's a good point, Dan. That it also, even if we only see a fraction of the work we do, it does sell the belief for the actors when they walk in, and you have a completely decorated house, even though sitting on a soundstage, you know, you got the little post-its and refrigerator magnets and the the dirt leftover food stains on the, on the gas stove and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm a big, big believer in, in the layers and the detail, even if people don't really acknowledge it in a conscious level, they acknowledge it, I think on an unconscious level. And the more a set looks real, then the more they can buy into the story. But if it feels a little bit phony, maybe they can't put their finger on why, but it undermines the credibility of the story. Right. If everything looks like it just came off the shelf of a store, everything's clean and bright and right. unsmudged, we know it. We sense it. What I tell every new scenic department, et cetera, scene department I work with, you know, nothing should look new unless it's scripted as new. I tell him all the time, he's like, take the shine off of it. Take that newness off of it. It doesn't have to be looking like shit, but it shouldn't look brand new because, you know, unless it's scripted, unless that's a plot point. 
and most of us aren't. Uh, most of us don't live our existences as designers or decorators. You know, our, uh, our 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 framed photographs on the wall are sometimes a little off kilter. Sometimes we put things down that don't quite make sense, but they make sense to us. Not on my sets. <laughs> Probably not in Warren's house either. I do want to dive a little deeper on to that episode, uh, Home Invasions, actually episode six, where it's all set in the house and the aliens are coming after the people. As you mentioned earlier, Lauren, you built some of this on stage to accommodate what sounded like some special effects. I'm curious about that process of accommodating other departments and also if there's any accommodation for what visual effects is going to have to do. Well, sure. That house, we built the entire interior of that house. It's one of those cases where you read the script and it was very, very specific. This happened and they see it from this angle and this, you know, it's a real jigsaw puzzle to put that together. And initially, they wanted to shoot it on location, which I'm not saying I'm smarter than the producers, but um, my gut told me we would not be shooting this on location. And sure enough, we ended up building it. And we built the ground floor and the second floor as one set. We built the attic as another set and the basement as a third set so that we were able to accommodate each and every moment in that script. And then the actual house was shot up in, um, what town was that? Not Haverstraw. It was... Uh... That was around Harriman Park, wasn't it? That was... Yeah. 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 yeah that... And again, we, you know, the, the floor plan of the house was actually based on a previous house we had signed off on, but then that changed and we ended up going to this one. Sometimes you just, you know, you lose a little bit of control, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, I think it all worked out. Yeah. I think that's one where there's not a lot of exterior shots and no. to Dan's point earlier they're at night and so right. the fact that if there's a shift in the floor plan but you but was originally meant to match a floor plan you're saying for a different house it was originally designed for a different house yeah so the exterior you're, you're trying to acknowledge what it looks like from the outside on the inside but you're right it was dark and that was very forgiving and monsters are attacking human beings. So, you know, who has time to pay attention to the floor plan? <laughs> well, you know, as, as we as we often say, look, if they're if people are picking up on this, then we've got bigger problems than this. <laughs> Slotesburg is where the house was. And I got such a kick out of going up there and I had a crew up there addressing the exterior of the house and the porch where some stuff took place and explaining how, okay, so the people go in here and then they come out at the house down at Beth Page, Long Island. And then we see them go up the stairs and then they run down into the basement and then they crawl out this window over here in Slotesburg. So it's (laughs) fun. (laughs) When you know a set is going to be Destroyed is too large a word, right? Because it's so much more controlled than that. But there's going to be this destruction in the set. How does that affect and carry how you set decorate? Like what what you actually put in a thing? Or is all of this coordinated with stunts and special effects and visual effects ahead of time? Just make sure everybody's on the same page. Well, it's a lot of discussion with stunts and special effects. And it usually means multiples of stuff because when things get are supposed to get destroyed or they fall over, you have to be prepared that you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So you may just have to replace Humpty Dumpty with a whole new settee or something. And it's just, it's a process, you know, it just, it's a lot of back and forth with the set decorator and Lauren as the designer and what we can do. And then also what the AD has planned in terms of how many takes they can do and how much time they want to devote to it. Somehow it all just, there's a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of um, 
I don't know what we're doing. I'm hoping someone will. <laughs> uh, usually that's what, that's what I say. People come to me with a lot of questions like my crew, or what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And I'm like, I have no idea. That's all above my pay grade, uh, but let's just hold on. They'll figure it out eventually. And I usually say, go talk to Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's where that comes from. Well, I'm, I'm sure that all four of us here have at some point or other on a location encountered somebody coming up to us, like the homeowner, saying, I had no idea it took so many people and so much time to do this. And they're only really looking at what's happening with the shooting crew on that particular day or, or the dressing crew a couple of days in advance. But before any of us get to that location, there's a gazillion phone calls and emails and, and so many audibles called on a daily basis. Oh, we're going to we're going to use this floor you know, covering. Oh, we can't get that in time because of COVID problems. We're going to have to go with something else or, you know, this person is sick or, you know, oh, my entire, you know, uh, my, my truck drivers are both down with COVID or, or whatever else. There's a million little reasons why before everything happens and is shot, there's a million little decisions that get changed and, and constantly counterchange before you get to that point where, you know, pencils down, eyes up. It's time to commit to, to the camera. Yeah, and it's all because some some writer put it on paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just heard this funny story, uh, Skid, that I want to share because it kind of relates to this. Ray Fisher, another set dresser and uh, sometimes green person. Not related to me, by the way. Ray no, Fisher. yeah, no relation to Dan. Uh, was working on a movie called You Got Mail, Nora Ephron movie, You Got Mail. And um, there is uh, the opening scene has this letter which flies through the air and goes through windows and flies through branches and trees and goes in through the window and floats and then lands on the bed or something like that. And there's this whole elaborate opening sequence. And Ray Fisher said he'd been practicing for for days with the moving the the branches just in time to for the letter to come through and the, the day comes to shoot this and they're at it all day long as these things take it's very complicated and there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of everything has to go exactly right to get the one take they're at it all day long and uh nora efron who never learned ray's name just said leaf man yeah leaf man go slower <laughs> with the with the branches anyway she finally says i had no idea this was gonna take all day if i had known that i'd have just written something else <laughs> uh, there's always that feeling too that you get when you do put all this work into prep and you're getting everything lined up and set up and people you know booked and so forth and then you get those blue pages where it says scene omitted. Yeah. <laughs> it's halfway between anger, like screw those guys. I put all this work in and now they're, but on the other hand, it's relief too. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, don't have to do that now. And there's a question that I always have to bite my tongue on because it's not my place to ask. But when I see these really elaborate things that are written in, I want to go to the writer or the director or the executive producer and say, how married are you to this? <laughs> because this is going to be a nightmare to pull off. So if it's just a whim, speak up now and you know, let's, let's come up with something else. For me, the frustrating thing is when I read a scene and it's got all this stuff in it and you realize it really is not contributing to the story. You know, we were tight on money and you're going to drop $30,000, $40,000 on set dressing. I, I won't name names in this, you know, uh, invasion. Uh, but And you're going, this is never going to make it into the final cut. I just know it's never going to make it into the final cut. And then sure enough, 
it doesn't make it in the final cut. And all that aggravation, all that money we spent. All those man hours. All those man hours. And you just know, we know from experience, watching stuff and having read this stuff before and, you know, seeing it produce that ultimately, because they always have more material than they need, right, for the hour. So you can tell what's going to end up on the cutting room floor. But hey, I'm grateful for the work. (laughs) Always grateful for the work. Always grateful for the work. Grateful or not, let's give me some sense of your impressions. You put a ton of effort into this, both what makes it on the screen, what doesn't make it on the screen. Uh, And then the reception is not perhaps what you might hope, or are you able to separate from what people see in the show, knowing that your work is still there and something to be proud of? Um, I'm always disappointed because you do want the show to be watched. You want it to be good. Yeah, I get over it quickly, but yeah, initially, yeah. If I read Rotten Tomatoes, I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> damn. <laughs> so yeah, I, it, it's, you do, you put a lot of effort into it and, and you hope it's going to be seen. But I, you know, so yeah, Rotten Tomatoes didn't care much for Invasion, but personally, I'm very proud of the work that this department did and everybody who was involved in it did amazing work. I'm very, very proud of it. So fuck them. <laughs> I don't think the problem with the show is is any of the work that we did. I, I, I'm I'm proud of how it looks. I was I'm proud to be a part of it. Yeah. And um, just uh, we had sort of an impromptu text line amongst uh, uh, the set dressing department. We all were like, "Oh, you know, this isn't half bad." So we <laughs> we all uh, enjoyed it. Well, I, you know, to to be. Truthful, but as tactful as I can be, I didn't expect the critics to love this. But then again, my taste in movies is pretty, I can be kind of highfalutin in my taste for movies. I'm not a big like comic book movie guy. I'm not a big action movie guy in general. I do like an emphasis on character, which was something I thought was really good about this show was that it wasn't going to be just about the bang, bang, boom, boom. It was going to be about examining the lives of people and how they react to this terrible, terrible tragedy. Did the show succeed in examining those lives to the satisfaction of both critics and audience? Uh, I I guess according to Rotten Tomatoes, the answer is no, it didn't for whatever reasons. I thought it was gonna be a bigger sort of, I don't know, part of the zeitgeist and conversation. I have no idea how ratings are kept for this stuff, but I expected it to make sort of a bigger public splash than it seems to have. I, I don't really hear people talking about it the way they talk about Squid Game or the way they're talking about uh, Don't Look Up Right Now or whatever. And maybe that's because maybe Apple TV doesn't reach as many viewers as Netflix. Uh, I don't know what the reason, but I was disappointed in that. I I'd, I'd hoped more people would have watched it. Well, you know what, Dan? It did get picked up for season two. There you yeah. go. Apple also didn't care what the critics thought that uh, yeah. I read soon after that it, was, that it was renewed for more. So I have to say that from personal anecdotes, I mean... I know several people who watched it and really liked it. I enjoyed it. You know, I was a pretty harsh critic, uh, but, you know, I thought it came off really well. So what talk is there about season two? Lauren, I imagine we'll start that conversation with you before uh, Carrie and Dan hear about it, but your thoughts about going back? Um, well, I don't know where they are on it right now or where the, where it's going to shoot. As, as we pointed out, you know, we could have shot this anywhere. It didn't have to be in New York. And it is an international show, so I really don't know anything beyond that. Well, if you did go for it, Carrie and Dan, they come along. You don't have to tell them now, but uh, 
Yeah, thanks. You put me right on the spot there. <laughs> you are being recorded too long. <laughs> uh, you know what? Carrie and his crew, I want them on every show I do. Unfortunately, sometimes it does, doesn't work out. You know, um, like right now, we're not going to be working together on my current show. But um, I trust Carrie's judgment so much and his creativity. And there are certain things I know I can just say, Carrie, will you please make this work, <laughs> you know, and, and he's going to, and he pulls together a wonderful crew every time. You know, I just really value him and you too, Dan. No, you guys are great. I'd, I'd love to work with you on every job uh, until I retire in a couple of years. I got to be on my good behavior though, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, together or separate, uh, you guys are welcome back on the show as well. It's been fun talking to you guys today. Thanks so much for being here on Bullet Line. Thank, Thank you. you. It's fun. Listeners, I hope you're enjoying Season 10. Our Oscar coverage will start in March, but I think these episodes will keep you entertained until then. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to check out our catalog. It's easy to peruse past episodes at the website, belowtheline.oneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. We're also on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying the season, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. You guys, I have sirens for a minute. Sorry, that might come through, so give me one second. They're coming for you, Skid. The cops are going to be surrounding you in a moment saying, please come, come, out, out, of the the, come out of the blanket room. <laughs> Step, you behind those blankets. <laughs> <laughs> Match the description. <laughs>